HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, and you're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank our sponsor, Acme Smoke Fish, located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Acme's been a mainstay in New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. They use an old-world recipe. They produce some of the finest smoked salmon, whitefish, and sable around. For more information on where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, visit www.acmesmokedfish.com. Um, and we have a little giveaway today, too. If you call in live, our number is 718-497-2128. We have tickets to the New York Food Film Fest and also Porterhouse Pork Shops from Heritage Food USA. So call on in. That number again, 718-497-2128. And I'd like to introduce our lovely guest, Charlotte Druckmann. Um, I don't even know what I can say about you because you have so much to say. You have such a breadth of knowledge within food and design. She writes for uh, New York Times, Tea Magazine under the food section, has worked for Food and Wine. Um, the section, Tea section, which I, I love, is the We Made It Ourselves, which kind of is about the craftsmen and artisan uh, food movements around the world. And I hope that the food scene is kind of akin to those ideas and aesthetics and so thank you for coming on, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, what's wonderful about Charlotte is that she has a background in art history. Uh, where did you go to school? Um, I was in an English major undergrad, and I took some art history classes as a minor. And something about it just, it was like, it just snapped for me. It just, everything came together. Um, and so I decided I wanted to be an art history professor. Excellent. I just like got this notion yeah. in my head to be an art history professor. And so I went to the Institute of Fine Arts, which is um, the program that NYU does specifically for graduate work in art history. Yeah. And um, So it's convenient to be around all these museums and then all the food that inspired. It is. It's, I mean, I think anytime you can do that level of work in a city like New York, and the um, school itself is two blocks away from the Met. It's in Doris Duke's old mansion. 
so you're literally you know it's like a literal feeder yeah. into the into the met and um it's it's a pretty great experience yeah so but I'm not a professor. No. And I did, I am I say I am a lapsed PhD student. Just, yeah. you know, so no one starts thinking that I, you know. But she is going to school us in some food knowledge today. Um, <laughs> wanted to kind of lead into the ideas of art history, of Dutch alcoves, uh, Italian futurism as two that may be a starting point of how we see food, how we plate food, how we experience food today. Um, from Dutch alcoves, uh, I recently had Victoria Granoff, a uh, wonderful food stylist on, and she did Michael Pollan's Omnivorous Dilemma. And people see that, and it has locavore, it has sustainable, it is Flemish, it is 16th <laughs> century. What resonates and what is similar and striking from Dutch alcove paintings to today's food ideas. Well, what I think is the most interesting, which maybe is a little weird, but I think that there's a sort of, there's a darker side to Dutch alcove um, aesthetics, I guess. And there's also the idea of a moral. And even though we don't tend to express the moral side, I do think it's interesting that it was, you know, on Michael Pollan's book because he really does have a point of view that's about ethics. So it's, you know, I I have a feeling that might just be coincidental, but I think the amazing thing about Dutch Alcove is that there's this idea of sort of death in life and decay. And in food in the last, I would say the last decade, there's been this sort of celebration of what you could say is like the jolie laid, right? It's all these things that were uglier that aren't supposed to taste good. You know, suddenly we all embrace sardines and anchovies and awful and hey t- ugly tomatoes yeah. <laughs> I mean they actually branded it yeah and and I feel like it's really funny because on the one hand everyone's been talking about the the beauty of the Dutch alcove I remember at this point I think it's you know maybe eight years ago my first um editorial job out of grad school was at Daily Candy when Daily Candy was still really small and I wrote up um, a florist who is in the East Village. And at the time, he was sort of like the hot florist. And that was his aesthetic. And we talked about what had inspired him. Food had inspired him. Film, a lot of Peter Greenaway films had inspired him. We're going to talk about Peter Greenaway. So I I feel like this has been happening for a while, but that right now it seems to be expressing itself best through food and that means visually, but also the actual food itself. Yeah, you know. Let, let's not even waste time to talk about Peter Greenaway. Yeah, who's I love a, Peter Greenaway. He's one of my favorite <laughs> British authors, and unfortunately, I say I, I, you know, show the movies and people suffer through them because they're yeah. for a specific type. I yeah. mean, they're cinematic opuses that are three, four, five hours long amongst a couple of focal points but food is a huge one in cook wife thief lover yeah and, and art food and art together yeah. Yeah. there's always they are always hand in hand in his movies it's the last supper i think there's that hans holbein painting you know in the yeah. cook it's and it's they're always interconnected yeah. there's something and they're also always visceral so there's this combination of the food being oh wait you know, we got our first phone call uh caller are you in hello hello who is this hi my name's Jeff. Jess, thank you for calling to the food scene. I just like the thank you for listening. And um, unfortunately, we can't chat that much because uh, Charlotte's got a wealth of knowledge that hopefully will entertain you. But I'm going to give you back to my producer, Jack, and uh, congratulate you on winning New York Film Fest tickets and some beautiful porterhouse pork chops from Heritage Food. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling in. No problem. Have a great day. (laughs) You too. Cheers. Excellent. That was my first phone call. I think I handled it pretty well. Congratulations. That's great. Um, 
Wonderful. So right back into Peter Greenaway. Yeah. Not just Cook White Thief Lover, another movie of his which I'm smitten with is Zed and Two Knots, or yeah. also known as Zoo. Um, the majority of that movie being about you know life and decay in that they take all this food and produce and time-lapse photography it, yeah. watching it kind of demise. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting cycle that you touched on before that people are understanding food in a way that there is the beautiful freshness, but there's also the compost. Yeah, there's and there's the compost, and then there's also, I mean, if you're going to get metaphorical, there's sort of all the, the waste yeah. in, a, in a sort of social sense. And I don't know, I feel like it's food has become this universal touchstone for so many different issues. You know, it, it can be socioeconomic, yeah. but then it can also be pop cultural and light and fun. It can be, you know, Adam Gopnik comparing the fooding to new wave cinema. Yeah. It's, and it, but it's all food. Yeah. So, yes, you can look at something like, you know, Dutch alcove or just any heap of food and suddenly you're seeing it in all these different ways yeah. that you never would have. So it's not just aesthetic. It's uh, what we're going to flow into is maybe synesthesia you know yeah. uh, the italian futurist a movement in the 1920s started playing with things like dynamism motion but also trying to get away from like you had mentioned before the bourgeois sense of food and yeah. their biggest slogan was italy no more pasta yeah yeah they you know it, it's very odd to have this idea of redefining nationalism by getting rid of the national food yeah. stuff but they also had this idea you know without using our catchphrase that you are what you eat. And there was this sense that pasta makes you sluggish yeah. and inert and that you should be focusing on, you know, quality instead of quantity. But then they were also having fun with it because they were making fun of the idea of taking food too seriously and, you know, having it be this sort of uh, status symbol to say, well, I ate here and I ate yeah. this. And <laughs> it's funny because it's so relevant now, yeah. you know. And, and um, yeah, so they were, I think, I can't remember what it was. There was some dish where it was literally, you know, they were really into machinery and steel and yeah. sort of people becoming machines. Yeah, in a way. and like uh, the architect Santa Elia built these giant steel structures, yeah. which were about Metropolis, but also about the collapse of, you know, large construction. Yeah, and there was, I, I, there was a, there's a dish of chicken where the chicken actually sort of marinates with steel. Yeah. Sort of, so they try to infuse the chicken with steel flavor and funnily enough if someone wanted to spoof what some of our chefs are doing now you could actually see okay maybe not steel yeah maybe it would be like the birch tree from their backyard or you know their dog's poop or <laughs> you know what I mean but you kind of get to that oh, yeah. state of, of ridiculous but there's something brilliant in it and and I keep wondering like I actually think that the futurists would have loved molecular gastronomy I think they would have totally embraced foam yeah. because it's light they were all about light you know, well, I mean, that's it's interesting that you bring that up. And, you know, from Grant Ackett's of Alinea to Wiley Dufresne here in New York at WD50 to see them take these very scientific techniques, which the futurists themselves were taking towards interpreting, you know, their arts and architecture back in the food. Um, there's much more of an understanding and playfulness now yeah. rather than before. It was, yeah, very kind of spoof. It was spoof, but then also it was spoof because it, there was all of this sort of subtext that was political, which is like that idea of, you know, the body politic. So what is the body politic ingesting? Whereas now we've sort of gotten rid of that sort of political substance. Yeah. And it's really just, it's more artful in terms of aesthetics and just, you know, visual and playful without being absurd 
or too uh, provocative. Yeah. You know? um, I think I have to kind of give an example, too, of what Italian futurists yeah. um, ate, because there was an amazing <laughs> cookbook that came out in 1932 by one of the leaders of that movement, Filippo Tommaso Marianetti, um, that these things dealt with, like Charlotte was saying, uh, marinating chicken with steel, but elements that you wouldn't expect. And synesthesia, which is the reinterpretation of senses, like you would eat a soup while scratching sandpaper with the yeah. other hand and <laughs> someone would lick and blow on the back of your neck and trumpets would be sounding. It's, so It's performance art before they called it performance yeah. art, you know, or multimedia. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. But then with molecular gastronomy, do you feel like multimedia has been put on a plate and people have forgotten that there's something outside of what's right in front of you? Adding audio, adding, you know, um, more sensory objects. Well, I think this is where you can start to draw so many parallels between the sort of the haute food scene today and then what the art scene art world was maybe in the first half of the 20th century. So I think that it becomes more of a form of entertainment, you know. Yeah. And what is interesting to me about molecular gastronomy is that there are very few cases in which people will have a molecular gastronomy experience and then the next day wake up saying, I want more of that. I crave it. Yeah. You know, and there's that sort of, that's where you lose the kind of visceral connection to it. But I do think this idea that, that food is entertainment. I mean, Grant Atkins is about to start charging, you yeah. know, for tickets to his restaurant has taken the idea while, by the way, we have this huge problem with hunger in our country. It's really taken that notion that you eat, you know, to live like, to an extreme case yeah. of, I mean, I guess form really, really trumping function. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say it isn't fun and amazing, but, you know, there's definitely a big discrepancy. So, like, hedonism versus epicure. Exactly. I mean, which way has the balance shifted right now? Yeah. Um, speaking of grants, if you don't know of his new restaurant opening up, uh, it is truly thematic and theatrical <laughs> that he's taking period pieces. I think one of them was Mongolia. I don't remember what century. And making a tasting menu purely of that. I think there are going to be quarterly menus or three a year um, taking certain, I think Paris 1920s was one of them, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, that one is actually, I want to eat that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Some of the other ones are kind of like, I'm not sure about the Mongolian thing, but you know, (laughs) it would be interesting to contemplate, but I don't know if I'm coming for dinner. Yeah, Um, Paris, I mean, uh, I said Paris because I'm thinking about France and an absolute <laughs> Francophile, which Charlotte is as well, and just returned from Paris. Yeah. And um, love to even talk about maybe, the, you know, the early 1920s and like Nouveau in France. How, how did that start influencing the food there? Or was the food first, like chicken and egg kind of thing? Well, I think that it's probably a perfect storm situation um, where you had this restaurant culture that had developed in you know the 19th century and it was sort of hitting its peak I think in the beginning of the you know the 20th century and there's that again it's funny it's like the theme of our talk there's that sort of at the height of sort of glamour there's also this decadence and I think that's really what was happening in the you know in the 1920s and so everything again to go back to the form and function thing it was really everyone was leaning towards form and so I think that you were seeing that in this sort of it was more about going to restaurants and having the experience of dining out as opposed to the actual, the food of it all. Yeah. And then you look at the design and it was all about the ornamentation. And I, I think those things are parallel. I mean, I don't know if they're really, you know, no, specifically it's- parallel, but I think it's like, you know, the overall whole leads to this, you know, kind of idea of 
just having a lot of fun, really, yeah. you know, and beauty and just, you know, hedonism yeah. to some extent. So we're going to take a quick yeah. break right now, but I think it's going to be interesting coming back, talking about um, farm to table food and yeah. whether or not that's form and function, hedonist, epicurean, who knows? You're listening to Michael Harlan Terrell, and this is the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkell, and you're listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network uh, with guest Charlotte Druckmann today, and we're talking about art and food. Well, what the food scene is about, but most specifically, do movements influence um, the dining scene of today, and which ones? Uh, We left off kind of talking about the differences between form and function, you know, hedonism, Epicureans, and... What would you consider this food-to-table movement? Is it utilitarian? Has it moved back towards function? Or is there still playfulness and fun in it? Well, I do think there's there's always playfulness and fun in food. But I, I think the, you know, the farm-to-table thing does come out of some bit of necessity just when you think of, um, I mean, whatever, me and my sweeping theories that I make up. But <laughs> you think about sort of post-9-11 and that kind of uh, isolationism that countries tend to take to after terrorists, yeah. you know, things have happened or after war or during war. So you get that sort of inward looking, you know, um, trying to redefine yourself as a nation, that kind of jingoism. Then you have the economy fail where you have people having to sort of you know, catch as catch can, which somehow can lead to really creative enterprises. Yeah. You have all these problems with agribusiness. So again, I think that the farm to table thing is as much uh, a thoughtful trend as it also came out of a certain necessity and a certain um, nationalist tendency, you yeah. know. And what's interesting for me is that America, we sort of have to, I hate to say it, um, fabricate a bit of our national lore, especially when it comes to the soil or craftsmanship with food. We don't have the same history. You know, we were talking about France, yeah. where this idea of terroir is so, it's so normal. You know what I mean? It's like whatever region you're from in France, 
is so important to you, integral to who you are, integral to what you make, to what you eat. And there is this history of making these things, you know, of making, whether it's caramels or making cheese, and there's so much pride in it. And our country, we don't have that kind of history our, in terms of how we sort of, our claim to fame is industry, it's, yeah. it's marketing. I mean, there it's, is regionalism. Uh, I was just recently down in Alabama eating barbecue, and, yeah. you know, that that's not something you're going to see in France no, often. No, And whether that grew out of necessity or just taste. Yeah, um, oh, both. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, a, a balance. But I mean, in terms of the actual, when you talk about these sort of, like, the product yeah. and that pride in the carrot, you yeah. know, that's for a long time our country has been really removed from that. So in a way, getting back to it has to be somewhat artificial. Yeah. But the hope is that it becomes ingrained. normal and ingrained. And, and my hope, I just don't, you know, I fear that it, I don't want it to be a passing trend. I yeah. don't want it to be this thing where, you know, for the next five years, every restaurant is farm to table. And then suddenly everyone's like, you know what? I think it'd be really cool to swing the pendulum and go back to importing. Yeah. And get really into, you know, processed stuff. I mean... Yeah, if it's cheaper, less terrible. Yeah, yeah. it, it is a fear, and it's yeah. interesting to, having talking to uh, a couple food stylists a couple shows ago about you know what products clients want and saying, well, it's out of season, it's imported, I can't get that you know as easily as you know you think I can. But then realizing that a lot of our food trends have their etymology and basis overseas, yeah. just like you know uh, Christopher Columbus coming over in his boat. So did a lot of the food ideas and trends. And we've lost a lot of what uh, Native American dishes. And only now yeah. is a slight revivalism in that. But but I also think that there's this sort of new American food that's happening, that's been happening, that is um, organic. I don't mean organic in the farm-to-table <laughs> sense. I mean organic in that you have chefs who, without contriving it or thinking about it too hard, are taking items from different countries and cultures and putting them together simply because they taste good together yeah. and they're trying to achieve balance on the plate. Can you cite a couple examples well, of that? Well, I'm biased because I'm, I'm writing a cookbook with Anita Lowe, but I think she's oh, wow. a, yeah. the most amazing example of that because she really will sort of, she'll start with, you know, I don't know, take a fava bean. Yeah. You know, she was just in Egypt and she was having a lot of um, fool and fava stuff and she sort of started to think, okay, what can I do with this? I love this flavor. And so then she starts to pair it with squab but she's not sitting there going, all right, I'm going to do Egypt meats, France meats, you know, Poland. Yeah. She's just thinking these are things that taste good together. And if you think about what America is and all the cultures that we are collectively, this is kind of the way that you would imagine American food to be. Yeah. Right? And then with terminology like fusion in the 80s, you know, yeah. uh, it kind of almost destroyed the sense of melting pot. And yeah. I think. I, at least I have this picture in my head of when you say melting pot, it's just a stew that's kind that's of bubbling over and just like... I think of yeah. Macbeth. I <laughs> yeah. think of the witches. <laughs> and who wants to eat out of cauldron, especially no. in these hot summer days? No. So to see somebody like Anita not only have that basis of worldly foods techniques, yeah. then use the experiential um, is, is awesome. It's awesome, but I think a lot of chefs are doing it. I mean, I think David Chang is doing it too. Again, I don't think he you know ever sits down and, and thinks, I'm going to merge these cultures. Yeah. I think he just thinks, what's going to taste delicious? Yeah. And because he has this sort of you know vast mental encyclopedia of food not just you know knowledge book knowledge but taste knowledge he can sort of pull these things out and, yeah. and i think that's what 
really American cooking is. I mean, or it's how we should be looking at it. So it's kind of like a loss of culture and identity almost. <laughs> it's just more about the experiences of specific, you know, icons or, or people. Or it's, I, I always say it's like, um, if you were to take the idea of terroir and make it its most extreme self, it would be a person. A yeah. person would be a terroir. So if you think of, you know, the chef as a moving terroir that's always changing, like yeah. a, a palimpsest or something, then when you taste that chef's food, you're tasting their terroir. In which case, to me, it still feels somehow personal and, you know... And it's kind of cool to think that they can move their epicenter. Yeah, you know? right. Well, I mean, you know, you can say I'm going to go to Japan, but then I grew up in a household where my, you know, parents were Moroccan, and I have those memories. And then I'm going to go live in Texas, and, you know, it all starts to, yeah. you know... There's a really interesting article in uh, Food and Wine about Pierre Gagné, um, about how he kind of starts with an experience, an idea, um, you know, one being walking through the desert and seeing the landscape, or one being a Moth R- Mark Rothko painting, and using that as the inspiration for dishes, whether it be purely of the form of them, or the emotion, or... And I, I thought that was a really interesting thing, to have people stop looking at, you know technique and cookbooks and how to use that basis of knowledge to interpret you know emotion and experience it's kind of like if if you could say that if you could predict a shift or hope for a shift you kind of would like things to get away from i guess the cult of personality which is like the whole Living celebrity color. thing yeah <laughs> which i'm Reed, one happened. of my favorite uh, musicians at all time. me too <laughs> um but you kind of think if we've been living in that sort of manufactured celebrity thing if it could shift from that to the cult of the personal which i do think these chefs that we're talking about i mean these are really personal yeah experiences that they're translating into food and you know i think that's a much more interesting way to like i mean then you can get into the whole again with the comparisons to art and you know yeah. film the auteur and you know l'atelier lines you exactly know. um right. what's an interesting shift is to talk about you know we made it ourselves yeah. the kind of small craft goods the artisans the diy yeah. um why were you interested in writing about that aspect that genre um I'm always, always drawn to people who are really passionate about what they do. And one of the things that I find doing that column is that once you start to uncover the stories behind the pot of jam and you hear where these people are coming from, you're always surprised. The detours that have been taken. And again, this is one of those other kind of, you know, um, lemonade out of lemon situations but i think that uh, again with the economy falling apart you had a lot of people who had maybe always thought they might like to dot dot yeah. dot i might like to cure my own bacon i might like to try the, you know the elliptical food product yeah, yeah. I, you know and then it's sort of like well now i've got nothing to lose and hey i've got a farmer's market because now everyone's championing you know their local farmer's market so why don't i just try it but i also i just love this that sort of idea that you can spend so much attention on something so small especially in the middle of this crazy fast-paced world where everything is so kind of global and also technological and then you have these people who will literally just spend hours perfecting the bacon jam yeah so myopia isn't a bad thing no i think it's a great it's a great balance and i i also love this idea that you can't get something everywhere i when i was just in paris and i my favorite caramels, which I almost brought you today, but I thought they would melt because it's really hot out. Um, but Jacques Genet, who's this chocolate maker, and he opened a shop in the Marais, I think about a year and a half ago. Um, 
he happens to make the best caramels I've ever had. I mean, really. And you cannot get them yeah. unless you go to the store. He his website is I think at this point it's even down. Like it does it's you know <laughs> under construction and not working. It's they're sold nowhere else in France. I mean, you have to go to that store. And I have to say I love that. Yeah. I think that that makes it so special. So are what single entities in New York, uh, in Manhattan, Brooklyn, do you resonate in that similar fashion? I right now I have to say. Um, I love ice cream, and I'm really obsessed with the Milkmaid um, ice cream ladies, and I, yeah. I think they should be on this show because I just like how they think, and uh, I can't remember which of them I think. Their delivery service, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they, so what they do is you subscribe. It's a subscription, and it is not cheap, but I think it's a great gift to give someone because yeah. it's this unexpected sort of every month they make you know limited edition two pints, two pints of ice cream that usually the flavors are seasonally motivated and they try and work with other local artisans and um you pick your pint you, you can either get both pints or you pick one pint and they hand deliver like they show up at your doorstep with your pint it has your name on it That's awesome. i mean it's, yeah. it's a little it, you know there's a little bit of a sort of a shtick going on but the thing is the ice cream is amazing yeah they're doing great things with and ice what, cream. what are some of their flavors and inspirations um I, which is one of my, the ones I love, they just did a honey lavender one with this granola. And of course now I can't, it's a Brooklyn based granola. It's so good. Early bird. Yes. yes. Early bird. I mean, oh, like, yeah, I love it's, early bird. it's so good. Yeah. And you know that they tell you where their, their lavender comes from. They tell you where, you know, their honey comes from. They go through all of it, but it's also delicious. So yeah. it's not just like, okay, yeah, we get the point. I mean, you sit there and you can finish the pine in one sitting. Yeah. They did a pear ice cream. Usually you see pear sorbet. They did a pear ice cream that had a uh, bits of crystallized ginger in it. That was just like sublime. Yeah. And I really, I love this stuff. And it's funny because I was following them. People will sometimes ask me where I find my, story ideas and I just say that I believe in tangents because I really do but Twitter has been I follow their Twitter because sometimes they'll ask people to give ice cream flavor suggestions and I do that don't think they (laughs) listen to me but I do it um anyway they tweeted about this guy who they they had met at I think the Greenpoint market who was making um syrups and sodas and they said we want to team up with him yeah. and so i went and checked him out pnh yeah. um, soda company and are they the same people that pour at brooklyn pharmacy or are they separate of it um they wait i think they might be yeah i think he just started though yeah yeah, yeah it's him and um anyway i decided just to go check him out he hadn't really gotten any press and i started talking to him and again he's the most amazing interesting guy it's he and his wife that work on this together and it's just and the sodas are i mean they're out of control and so now the milkmaid girls and you know the soda guy will get together at different markets and they'll do you know like floats yeah and i just it's just great i love that i love that sort of co-op you know being the mediator for yeah wonderful tangents or just or just this idea that i guess you know if you live in a, a rural place then you're dealing with more actual farming and sort of backyard, you know, soil work. But I think in cities, the equivalent is this sort of co-op exchange thing where maybe one person brings the ice cream and then one person brings the syrup and then, you know, someone else. I think it's 
a different kind of collaboration that yields really great things. Yeah. So instead of just meeting your farmers, meet your local food producers, those craftsmen, those artisans, those DIYers. Get them together and see what kind of beautiful uh, floats they can make. Yeah. I just want to thank you, Cheryl, for coming on, talking about pretty much everything under the sun today. And <laughs> thank you hope for to have you on me. again. And I would love to come oh, back. Oh, yeah, definitely. We got a lot more to say. And uh, you've been listening to The Food Scene. I'm Michael Harlan Terkel, your host. It's on Heritage Radio Network. Want to thank our sponsor again, Acme Smoke Fish, producer Jack Inslee, engineer Nat Wiener. And I'm telling you, go get one of those uh, floats right now because by the time I get to it, there's not going to be any left. <laughs>